Genesis 45. Now, the passage we're going to look at this morning is fairly straightforward. And that's good because I need to review quite a bit of content so you can appreciate what happens in chapter chapter 45. So don't panic and think we're going to go way over the 45-minute uh, time limit as we spend a lot of time setting the context for this passage. But let's say this about that. We've broken chapter 45 in Genesis as part of the Joseph story into two parts. Last week, we looked at the joy of reconciliation, of a relationship changing from uh, tension to tranquility, from enmity to peace. The joy of reconciliation can only be enjoyed by people who are gracious and forgiving if and when God allows and the time is right. You can always forgive, but you can't always reconcile because some people will not refuse to do that. We looked at that, and we saw how Joseph revealed himself to his brothers 22 years after they had sold him into slavery with the assumption the Egyptians would work him to death. And uh, he had forgiven them a long time ago, but after testing their character and making sure they were different people uh, and repentant about and aware of their guilt in uh, trying to kill him, he revealed himself to them and we saw them reconcile. Now today we're going to focus on the joy of reunion. And we're going to see that the joy of reunion and renewed fellowship with a person or a group or a family after God-given reconciliation is a great blessing. Boy, it's sweet when it happens, and it should be celebrated. So let me emphasize the difference between forgiveness, reconciliation, and reunion. Um, the Bible is really big, and our Lord Jesus is really big on the fact that we ought to be very forgiving people. Uh, I, I tell young ministers who sometimes want me to give them some input, I say, boy, you're going to have to, you and your wife are going to have to be very giving and very forgiving, way beyond the job description that you get. But then again, Christians are supposed to do that anyway. So forgiveness involves one person, the person who has been harmed or offended, giving up their right to personal revenge and ongoing resentment. They just give it over to God. Well, what if somebody breaks into my house and steals my stuff? Do I forgive that person? You forgive them at a personal level. You give it to God, and God has set up things like human government, Romans 13, to protect us from evildoers and to punish evildoers. So, of course, if I were you, I'd press charges, but you're not burdened by personal revenge or resentment. You can do that. We're called to do that in the Lord's Prayer. What does he say, Murray? Uh, one of the first things in the Lord's Prayer is, uh, and we forgive, uh, we want you to forgive our trespasses as we already have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. So forgiveness is one person, it's an attitude, it's giving up the right to personal revenge and or resentment. Reconciliation. Reconciliation involves two people, the offender and the offended, the, the uh, harmed and the harmer. And it's a change of relationship from enmity to peace, from tension to tranquility, from context to calm. And it's not always possible. People who forgive ought to keep the door open and pray for reconciliation. I'm convinced Joseph, 22 years before what we're going to read about today, Matt, in chapter 45, 
had long ago forgiven his brothers at a personal level, was praying that they would be changed by God enough that they'd sometimes be able to reconcile. And we saw the reconciliation last week. So forgiveness is giving up the right to personal revenge and resentment. One person, the harm, the offended person can and should do that if you're a believer. Reconciliation involves both parties, both people, and it's a change in the tone of the relationship. Reunion isn't an attitude, it's an act or a set of actions where you actually physically, in an ongoing positive way, interact with one another and connect with one another. Um, my family, when I was growing up, my my dad's grandparents, my grandparents lived in West Virginia. We were living like Miami, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and my uh, mom's family all lived uh, in the mid- Midwest in Indiana. So we never really had uh, big family reunions. I remember going to my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary way back in Sod, West Virginia. And I thought, man, they are really old. And, uh, you know, Debbie and I got married right after the Earth's crust hardened in 1973. And on July 14th, if she's able to get back into town, <laughs> uh, we'll celebrate, what is that, 46? Something like that? I did the math right. I'll never forget the time. I remember when Bill got the number wrong on their, what, 60th anniversary, whatever it was, he got the number wrong by a year. But... Uh, before I forget, my sister-in-law, Karen, is going to get her long-awaited knee replacement tomorrow morning. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is her house that she thought would take a year to sell is sold, and she's supposed to close on July 12th, which means somebody, and uh, he's a guy that likes to mow yards and stack chairs, is going to have to help her pack up because she's not going to be able to do much a couple weeks after that knee surgery, right, Pam? I'm surprised she's going to be able to ride a vehicle 500 miles, but um, I'm going to be driving a U-Haul truck up here. And I've got no depth perception. I only use my left eye. I've got no color color vision. And uh, I've got several outstanding felonies. No, I don't have that. <laughs> but uh, we're going to need some miracles uh, to make all that happen. So, uh, But reunion is when you physically get together. And we're going to see the setting for, not, they're not going to just have a family reunion. They're going to live for each other now and right out the last five years of the famine in Egypt. So we're going to see that. I think a great biblical example of the difference between forgiveness, reconciliation, and reunion would be the father of the prodigal son. Remember that in Luke 15? Uh, the young man who's the youngest of two brothers or young adults basically says, Hey, daddy-o. Go ahead and, I'm not waiting for you to die. Go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance that you're going to give me when you die. And I'm a big boy now and I'm going to go out and get rich and famous. Dad doesn't have to give it to him, but out of sheer super grace, he gives him his inheritance up front. What does the kid do? He moves to San Francisco and within 18 months, he's blown through all the money. And now he's so destitute as a Jewish boy in San Francisco, probably somewhere in amongst the Canaanites or whatever, he's feeding pigs. What do you know about Old Testament kosher rules and pigs. He's a Jewish boy feeding pigs, and he's so hungry, he's thinking, these pods I'm feeding the pigs look good to me because he's out hungry. And he says, you know what? I was wrong, and I'd be much better off just working for my dad. So what I'm going to do is, this is his plan, I'm going to go back home and say, Dad, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, but if you just let me work for you, everything will be okay. I'll accept that. Now, has the story. Jesus is very careful in the way he describes the wording here. 
He says, and so the son's coming back with the intent of just saying, I, re- I know I've renounced my citizenship. I know I'm not your son anymore, which is absurd. Of course he's still the son, right? Um, but uh, the, it says, the father saw the son afar off. Why did the father see the son afar off? Because he's been looking every day since the kid left. He'd already forgiven the son. He had not reconciled with him because you can't drag him home and have real reconciliation. The kid has to recognize his wrong, want to make some restitution, and come on back. And as soon as the dad sees him on the horizon, the dad runs to him. And before the kid can say the speech he'd memorized, Dad, I'm no longer would it be your son. He says, you're home, you're home, welcome home. He hugs him, he kisses him, he puts a coat on him, he has a big party for him. So you see, forgiveness has already taken place in the heart of the Father. He's hoping and praying for reconciliation, but the Son had to make a move for that to happen, and then they enjoy reunion. Now, unfortunately, there's somebody very happy at the end of that story, and it's not just the fattened calf that they killed for the meal. Who's the unhappy party at the end of that wonderful story of forgiveness, reconciliation, and reunion? The older brother Hey, Daddy-O, I've just been working here every day, just like you told me to. And I wonder what group in Judaism the unhappy older brother represents in the parable. That'd be the Pharisees, you know, who are so self-righteous, they think they deserve everything they get from God, and they can actually earn their way to heaven. So we're going to talk about the joy of reunion now, after renewed fellowship and God-given reconciliation, and You know, one like this might never happen to you. This is so epic. But, uh, you know, sometimes you'll get people who just, for whatever reason, decide you're no good and worthless, uh, crummy person, and you you forgive them, but you can't reconcile. And then suddenly, you know, they want to uh, connect with you again. And it's a sweet, sweet thing when it happens. And so we should uh, hopefully see that kind of thing happen in our lives. But before we dive into chapter 45, verse 16 and following, Let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word this morning, that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text would illumine it so it's not just information but transforming truth in our lives as heart and hearts as believers. And then let's pray for our um, military, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, Danny, uh, pray for us in that direction. Amen. Thank you, Danny. I think Danny is probably my hero of the week every week, but that's just me. Um, to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, let me introduce you to a Christian satirical website. Uh, and if you're not a Pharisee, you'll get a big uh, chuckle out of the Babylon Bee. Uh, I don't find them all that funny, especially when they're making fun of Dallas Seminary and stuff like that. But uh, uh, it, it doesn't hurt for us to look at some of the quirks amongst us and in us and in pastors and in churches and stuff and kind of laugh about it. And uh, I'm going to show you one here. Babylon, be check it out sometime online. Um, evangelical mistaken for Mormon after something happens. Now, before I tell you what they say happened, let's talk about what an evangelical is. You need to know this because that term is used in a lot of different ways in our culture, and the mainstream media uses it as a real negative term nowadays, even though I'm not sure exactly how they define it. Different people define it differently. 
Um, but they're going to say, well, those are those repressive, weird people who don't believe in abortion on demand and the government should pay for it and that believe in spanking their children under certain circumstances and uh, have a weird definition of marriage and all that stuff. They're very repressive. They're not inclusive like we good people are out there. So they're kind of dangerous. But uh, we get the word evangelical from the New Testament Greek word that's translated gospel. The the Greek word that's translated gospel is euangelion, means good message, good news, or gospel. And as far as the gospel of Christ, the place you go for a definition is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says at the end of that long letter, hey, Corinthians, before I write the end of this letter, let me remind you the very first thing I preached to you when I planted the church in Corinth. It's the thing we stand on. It's our core essential belief. It's the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and he was buried, and he rose again from the dead on the third day, and he appeared to multiple people over 40 days. So that's the gospel. That's the good news. And because the Greek word for gospel is euangelion, or evangelical, as a theologian wannabe, I'm going to define evangelical Christian uh, not as dangerous, repressive, backward people, but of born-again believers in Jesus Christ of all colors, countries, cultures, denominations, generations, who have dared to trust Jesus Christ alone because he died for our sins and rose again for their personal salvation. Okay, uh, John 3.16, somebody no less than Martin Luther himself, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, 16th century, said John 3.16 is the gospel in a verse. If you Find yourself in a time where you can, a place where you can actually witness to somebody. You don't necessarily need a tract. All you need is John 3.16. God couldn't love you any more than he already loved you. He couldn't give any more than he given for you in Christ. Couldn't make it any clearer that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish like a fire, but has zoe, not biological life, but spiritual life. And the Greek text doesn't say whosoever is actually a um, articular present active participle. It could be translated all of those, or every one of those who believe on him, every single individual who recognizes their sin, their true guilt, their complete inability to save themselves, and then trusts Jesus Christ in active receptive trust, receives the gift of eternal life. That's the gospel, and uh, that's the core of all born-again Christianity. We were singing, we're glad we're part of the family of God, and that family of God is a lot bigger than Tangwood Bible Fellowship, or all the believers in Duncan, or all the believers in Oklahoma. It's all the believers since Pentecost all over the world. And that's a couple of representative denominational groups. But all born-again Northern Baptists, and all born-again Southern Baptists, and all born-again Methodists, and all born-again Assembly of God folks, because of the gospel, are evangelical Christians, right? Very important. Clearly, back to the abstract thought warmer-upper. For the Babylon Bee, evangelical, mistaken for Mormon, after treating everyone with kindness and respect. One thing that American culture will say about Mormons, even non-theologians, they seem so nice, they seem so clean-cut, they're so respectful to people. They don't necessarily say that about us. You know why? Because sometimes we're not so kind, <laughs> and we're not always so, so respectful. So anyway, is your abstract thought warmed up yet? Now, I'm looking at a couple of doctors there who look very relieved because they've taken their first set of board tests. And, uh, of course, Ashley beat Tyler to the draw because she's always 
uh, faster than Tyler and everything. So once they put their shingles out, I'm going to go ahead and make my appointments with Ashley because I know she's going to get to me faster. And hopefully I get VIP treatment, right? But uh, as I say, we're going to have to put chapter 45 in context. So let's look at the uh, Joseph saga in a little bit of detail here as we are preparing to go into phase two next week. Phase two is after the reunion. But let's start at the beginning, chapter 37. Go back to chapter 37. We'll hit a couple high points. So flip fast. Look at verse 3. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, the father of the twelve sons, loved Joseph more than all the sons. That's descriptive, not prescriptive. Matt, it's not a good thing for a father to love one of his children over the others. This is not prescribing that. It's describing something that causes some issues, but it's just a fact. Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, the multicolored letter jacket, I call it. Verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all of them, so they hated him. They're offended, and they're not forgiving, they're hating, and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he talked to his brothers, they hated him even more in the dream, basically says, sometime in the future, you're all going to bow down, not, not worship me, but submit to my authority. So guess what? You think they like that? Not at all. Drop down to verse 18. First chance they get when they're uh, away from dad on a business trip, and Jake, Joseph is sent to check on them. Verse 18, when they saw him, that is the older brothers, the ten of them, saw Joseph from a distance, but before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They're going to kill him. And look what they say about him. Here comes that dreamer, the guy who thinks we're actually going to bow down to him someday. We're not going to let that happen. We're going to kill him, and his dream will die with it. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits here, and we'll say a wild beast devoured him. Then we'll see what will become of his dreams, right? So that's a summary of uh, that, but drop down to verse 26. So they're uh, sitting down to, to eat their lunch now while he's screaming in this pit trying to decide how to kill him. And in verse 26, Judah, one of the older brothers, said to his other brothers, what point is it us just to kill him and then cover up his blood to explain it away to dad? Let us sell him to these Ishmaelites, these slave traders that just happen to be coming down, and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, he's our own flesh. They'll just work into death and assault mine in Egypt, and his dreams won't come true. Uh, and then it goes on from there. Uh, drop down to uh, chapter 40, or chapter 39, I should say, verses 1 through 3. We're going to jump over 38. It's a parenthesis. We see Joseph's righteousness contrasted with Judah. Remember, Judah's the guy who wants to sell him to slavery. Judah's unrighteousness. I've told you the sordid story about that. We won't repeat that, but uh, you can read it later if you want to. But look at chapter 39. Uh, so look what happens. Joseph is uh, apparently going to be sold into slavery and worked to death in Egypt, but it doesn't really work out that way. He's sold into slavery, but he hits the ground on his feet. Now Joseph, chapter 39, verse 1, had been taken down to Egypt by slave traders. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the secret service, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites that bought him. He's just a piece of meat here who had taken him down there. 
But the Lord, Yahweh, the God of his salvation, was with Joseph even there, and he became a successful man in the household. He Inside work, no heavy lifting. He becomes kind of the administrative assistant in the whole household of Potiphar, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that Joseph did to prosper in his hand. But here's the bad news. Drop down to verse 19. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him multiple times. He resists, but ultimately she's so offended by his denials, she accuses him of attempted sexual assault. Uh, Verse 19, it came about when his master heard the words of his wife claiming that Joseph had tried to assault her sexually, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned, probably more at her than him. I think she's he's pretty sure uh, she's not all that honest, but he's got to save face and do something. So Joseph's master took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph in the jail. I don't think the text is going to say that if he's holding personal resentment against his brothers. He's already forgiven his brothers. He's putting them in God's hand. But God continues to be with him, not just outside of Canaan in Egypt, but no matter what happens to him, and now he's in jail. But the Lord was with him and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So from prisoner to number one trustee in the prison. Chapter 40. Look at verse 14. We've got, uh, what did I say there? From fellow prisoner, friend, to forgotten memory. Yeah, that's pretty good. Look at verse uh, 14. So he's in prison, and it turns out that the Pharaoh's butler and baker get on his bad side. He throws them in the same prison Joseph's in, and Joseph uh, interprets dreams they have, and uh, the butler is going to be returned to his service and his status very soon. That's what the dream meant. And so when Joseph interprets that for him, look at verse 14. Joseph says, okay, you're going to go back to work very soon. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, when you get out of here and go back to your position at the White House. Uh, but please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison house. You know, I'm totally innocent of the charges. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's land. And even here, I've done nothing that I should have been put into this dungeon. Okay, Drop down to verse 23. So that's all good. The butler's going to help him out, right? No, in fact, the chief cupbearer, the butler, did not remember Joseph after he goes back to his former duties, and he forgot all about him until two years later. Look what happens in chapter 41. Look at verse 1. From prisoner to prime minister. You couldn't make this up. Now, it happened at the end of two full years, and Joseph might be thinking, God's not doing anything here. I don't think he thinks that way. I think Joseph is fully invested in believing in the providence of God. He knows that God is in control of everything and all things work together for good on God's timing based on his definitions, based on our character. That happened in a two th- at the end of two full years when, humanly speaking, it's too late. The guy's not going to remember him, the butler who's been returned to the White House staff, that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he's standing by the Nile, and he sees two separate dreams that indicate there are going to be seven years of great buffer crops and then seven years of no crops. So we have the dream, and look what happens. Verse 15, the butler says, hey, I know a guy that can interpret dreams. Pull him out of prison, maybe he can help you. 
verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. For I have heard it said about you that you hear a dream and you can interpret it. And Joseph gives God the glory. He's a God-centered believer. Then answered Pharaoh saying, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Boom, what a great way to answer that one and to testify of his faith there. Uh, look at um, verse 38. So he says, hey, look, the dreams are saying you're going to have seven years of bumper crops here and then seven years in the whole region. Nobody's going to have any crops. So verse 38, Pharaoh says to his staff after Joseph interprets the dream, can we find a man like this in whom there's a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, the seven good years, the seven terrible years, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are in this whole issue. And so you shall be over my house, over the whole food saving and then distribution system over the next 14 years. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throng will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I set all of Egypt under you. So we're seeing this happen. So from prisoner to prime minister, chapter 42. Still with me? Look at verses 1 through 4. Second year into the famine, so we're fast-forwarding nine years now. Second year of the famine, the whole region's affected, including where Joseph's family lives. And we read this in chapter 42, 1 through 4. Now Jacob, that's Joseph's daddy, saw that there was no grain, there was grain in Egypt, even there was no grain in Canaan, but there was grain in Egypt because Joseph had saved it for the nation. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you looking at each other? Stop looking dumb, get in your wagon, go get some food, basically what he's saying. So he said, behold, I have heard there's grain in Egypt, go down there and buy some for us from that place so we'll not sit here and starve to death. The ten older brothers of Joseph, the ones that sold him into slavery, uh, went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's younger brother Benjamin with the older brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. He's been traumatized by what happened to Joseph 22 years before. And you can understand. Look at verse 8 and 9. So here they come. Joseph recognizes them coming into town, but they didn't recognize him. And the text emphasizes Joseph had recognized his brothers on this Buying food trip, although they did not recognize him. He looked totally different, had the Egyptian garb, is not speaking Hebrew. And Joseph remembered the dreams he'd had about him. Wow, this is actually going to happen. I don't think he had any doubt that it's going to happen like real quick. Uh, right now in a time frame I can understand. Drop down to verse 19. Uh, he interacts with them. And he's going to put them through some testing to see where their character is. And he says, if you guys are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined here. It's going to end up being Simeon. But as for the rest of you, go carry the grain for the famine back to your households. And bring your younger brother. We know it's Benjamin, his younger brother. He'd ask him, do you have an older father? Do you have any other siblings? And I said, yeah, we got a younger brother, but he stayed home. So go back, take the food we're going to give you. But when you come back for more food, bring your younger brother to me. I'm going to hold Simeon until you do that so your words may be verified and you will not die of starvation. And they did so. So he begins to test their character, right? Drop down to chapter 43, verse 8. The brothers return a second time with Benjamin, and they face the final character test. 
Justice forgiven him. He wants reconciliation, but it can't happen unless their characters have changed. So he's making sure they haven't whacked Benjamin, that they have real concern for their father, which they didn't have 22 years before when they lied to him about them selling Joseph into slavery. So let's see what happens here. Look at verse 8 and 9 of uh, chapter 43. Judah said to his father Israel, they're having to talk Jacob into letting the younger son Benjamin go with him, even though he's 30 years old or something now. Uh, Judah said to his father Jacob, uh, send the lad, Benjamin, the youngest brother, with me, because the guy who works for Pharaoh said uh, we couldn't buy food unless you bring him unless we bring him this time. And we will rise and go, that we may live and not die of starvation here as well as our, our little ones. And I myself, Judah, the guy who came up with the idea, let's make some money off the deal, 22 years before, sold him into slavery, I myself will be surety for him, for Benjamin. You may hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and send him before you after we go there to Egypt again and get the food, let me bear the blame. He says that to his dad, and he's going to say much the same thing to Joseph when Joseph uh, makes it look like Benjamin steals his cup. Go to verse 28, same chapter, or 27. So they come back with Benjamin. Joseph notices Benjamin's there. They're interacting. And the first thing he says, this Egyptian potentate, through translator, says, is your old father well of whom you spoke last time you were here? Is he still alive? Seems weird that this Egyptian government official is so worried about their, their father, isn't it? Isn't that strange? Uh, I should have told him something. And they said, you're serving our father as well. He's still alive. And then they bowed down in homage. Whoops. That was the original dream, that they bowed down to him. That actually happens more than once. And as he lifted his eyes, he saw his brother Benjamin up close, his mother's son. And he says, is that your younger brother about whom you spoke to me? Whom you said you had to bring him back? And they said, yes, that's right. And he looks at him and says, may God be gracious to you. And so they have a big dinner at Joseph's house for all of them. They're like treated like welcome guests. And look at the last verse of this chapter, verse 34. So Joseph took portions to them from his own table. They got the best food. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much. He didn't give him a multicolored jacket, but he gives him five ribeyes. Now, he's not going to eat all five ribeyes, but you can wrap those up, and you can actually warm them up quite quite nicely. And there's a, a recipe where you use Coca-Cola that really works nicely. I didn't know about that, but my sister-in-law was here and told us about it. I uh, took portions. Benjamin got five times as much as the others. And the other brothers didn't couldn't care less. They're just so happy they're going to get more food for home and that they're being treated like VIPs. They could care less if Benjamin gets more than they do. It's all good. It totally changed. Chapter 44. The brothers with Judah in the lead ace this final character exam. You guys think you had a tough exam? This was even tougher. This is all about character. Chapter 44. Look at verse 17. In verse 12, let's back it up. The next morning, uh, they get loaded up. They're going to go back to Canaan. It's funny because Chuck uh, Swindoll's commentary says this would be a five- to six-day trip. I'm thinking it's more like 11 to 12 days. Uh, I kind of Googled it. I found out it was 400 kilometers, which is roughly 240 miles, if I did the math right. 
I'm not sure you can go 40 miles a day doing what they're doing. More like maybe 20, I'm assuming that. So it's going to be a pretty good trip. But they just, they're just getting out of town under Joseph's blessing. But he had one of his servants put his special silver cup in Benjamin, the youngest son's saddlebag. So it looks like he stole the silver cup. So they're just getting in the outskirts of town and going back home on their five to six day journey. Chuck Swindoll, 11, 12 journey, more like it, more realistic possibly. Um, and guess what? They say, hey, when of you guys stole our guy's cup? When of you guys stole the prime minister's cup? They said, we wouldn't do that. There's no way. Are you kidding? Check our, check our saddlebags. So starting with the oldest to the youngest, they check the saddlebags. Nobody's got it until they get to the youngest and they pull out the cup. Joseph's, the prime minister, they don't know it was Joseph's cup. And basically, uh, he says, you know, this guy needs to come back with us. And they refuse to let just Benjamin go back to face the music. They all go back. But look what happens. Uh, verse 17. But he said, uh, far be it for me to punish all of you. The man, Benjamin, in whose possession the cup has been found, he's going to be my slave. But as for the rest of you, and that's all y'all, that's plural, go in peace, go back to your father. Y'all can leave him. That He's giving them a chance to leave Benjamin in the lurch. Uh, in the same way they treated him 22 years before. And they're totally changed. They're not going to do that. And Judah takes the lead. And he was the worst offender initially. Then Judah approached Joseph and said, Oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word to you. Don't be angry with your servant. I know you've got power of life and death, but I need to talk to you about this. Drop down to verse 30. Now therefore, if we go back home to our dad and Benjamin... The lad is not with us. Since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will come about that when he sees that Benjamin is not with us, he will die. This will kill our father. We're not going to do that to him under any circumstances. You can do whatever you want to to us, but we're not going to go back home without him. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant... Me personally became surety for the lad to my father. I said, I will make sure personally he gets back home. And so look what happens in 33. Talking about the doctrine of imputation. Now therefore, please let me, Judah, your servant, remain instead of Benjamin. Let me take his place as your slave and let him go back home with my brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I will see this evil overtake my father. That's huge. If Judah, the worst one, Connie, is in that place, the others are essentially the same kind of people now. Their characters change. There's basis for reconciliation. And now Joseph's overwhelmed. And look, this is what we stressed last week, where they are able to reconcile now. Joseph, who's forgiven them 22 years before, now sees free and clear reconciliation is legitimate. So we read this. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him, all of his staff, as long as the brother and brothers are there too, but the people who work with him. And he cried, have everyone, all the Egyptians go out for me. All the staff get out of the room. So there's nobody in the room but Joseph and his brothers. And he wept so loudly, the Egyptians in the other room heard it, and the word got the Pharaoh. And these are tears of joy, man. Then Joseph said to the brothers, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. And then he says, is my father really alive? You know, uh, but his brothers were so shocked and so shook. And what are they thinking? Now he's going to drop the hammer on us. We sold him to slavery 20 years 
uh, ago. He's got power of life and death. He just wanted to uh, make it, you know, uh, as painful as possible for us. But he's not doing this malignantly. He's doing this very benignly. I'm Joseph. Is dad still alive? The brothers don't know how to answer him. They're unable to. They're pretty sure they're about to have their heads chopped off or something worse. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But don't be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, and you're culpable for that. But God sovereignly sent me here before you to be in this position to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, seven good years, two years, five more years of famine they got to ride out. And there's still five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. But God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, in the land, and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not just you doing it, but only God sovereignly doing it through you so I could be here in that position. And he's now made me a counselor to the Pharaoh, lord of all his household, ruler over all the land of Egypt. So hurry. Dad's getting older every day. He's not getting any younger. Uh, and he's, he's running out of food too. So go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Guess who the prime, who is the prime subject of the Joseph saga? It's God. It's not Joseph. And he understands that from first to end and you really see that jumping out here. Okay, that's the context, okay? He's forgiven. They've reconciled. Now we're planning a reunion. So let's look at the second part of chapter 45, verses 16 through 28. And first we're going to see that the Pharaoh delights in the news of Joseph's reconciliation with his older brothers, and he invites the entire family to an all-expenses-paid move to Egypt. Would that be a beautiful thing? Um, we're, it's just ironic. This is Father's Day, and we're thinking about the father here, uh, Jacob, in a minute. And uh, we're a couple of weeks be- before i got to drive this truck <laughs> with all of Karen's earthly goods. Uh, wouldn't it be great if somebody just said, hey, look, Karen, just leave all your stuff in Groves, Texas. We're going to set you up here, and everything you need is going to be there. I mean, you know, thank you, Lord, for the fact that I'm going to pray for that miracle, Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to name it. I'm going to claim it. We're going to say you don't name it and claim it. But, more, I'd love to see that. Anyway, uh, look at verse 16. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house, the details, that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh, and they'd reconciled in his service. So this, this Pharaoh is a good guy. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts right now, and go back home to Canaan, and take your father and your households, and then come back to me. And I'll give you, that's all y'all, the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this. I'm going to force you to do a nice thing here. Take wagons with you from the land of Egypt for your little ones, your kids, and your families, and bring your father and come and move in here. But don't concern yourself with all your specific goods. Just give them away, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Here's a map of that 400 kilometers, 240 miles. And I like maps because we're emphasizing these are real places, real people, real events. And one of the the cool things about going to Israel is uh, just being reminded of that. And it was so fun watching uh, so many 
folks this last trip that had never been over there experienced that for the first time. When we got to that um, church of the teardrop there on the, on the Mount of Olives with the wrought iron cross that superimposes on the uh, Dome of the Rock as you look toward the Temple Mount, I heard Carla walked in there and she gasped because I had that picture up a lot on this PowerPoint. And several more people as they come in, they go, wow, that's, that's that wrought iron thing. He wasn't making that up. He didn't Photoshop that. It's really a real thing. Uh, so that was that was a thrill. So I think uh, you try to draw maps. Of, there are no maps for Hinduism. Hinduism is just kind of a concept. It doesn't matter whether any of the things are actually real or not. Uh, Mormons believe that Jesus came to the USA after his first, ad, first uh, advent in Israel and preached to the Indians. Uh, but all the things noted, all the cities and stuff located in the Book of Mormon, you can't find archaeologically. But all these things are real places in Scripture. We're talking about real people, real events, real places. Uh, verses 17 and 18, great minds think alike. The Pharaoh tops what Joseph had already told his brothers he wanted them to do. When he first reconciled with them last week, he said, I want you guys to move here and I'll help you with this. Pharaoh trumps that and says, I'm going to take care of everything. Everything's going to be all taken care of. And then look at verses 19 through 20. I love this, where he says, you don't have to bring anything. I'm going to provide you everything you need. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, that's a little bit like going to heaven, isn't it? I mean, it's all free, but you can't take anything with you. I mean, I can't take my letter jacket. I mean, I, you know. I can't take my diploma from Dallas Seminary, but I'm not going to need it. Everything you're going to need is going to be there. You know, a great passage to know as you think about uh, death, which is not extinction. In the Bible, death is not extinction. It's always separation. So spiritual death is relational separation from God. It's not extinction of God or extinction of you. It's just uh, emotional, relational separation from God. Physical death is not extinction of your consciousness. It's the separation of your soul, your consciousness from your body. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, uh, talks about death as being absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, or present with the Lord. And that's what, what, that's what death is, okay? Alright, let's look at verses 21 through 24. Pharaoh delights, he's gonna provide all expenses paid, they're gonna be able to write out the, uh, the famine, the five more years, in, uh, great standing with everything they need. And God's going to use not five years, but 400 years as an incubator until the uh, spiritual malignancy of the Canaanites gets to the point where it needs to be swatted down. But they're going to be incubated there as a nation for 400 years. But that's more story than we need right now. Look at verse 21 through 24. Joseph sends his older brothers off to their trip back home to turn around and move to Egypt with generous provisions, but gives special gifts to the youngest brother and special gifts for father Jacob. Verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so, did what they were told. I mean, what else would you do? With a smile on their face and a song in their heart. And Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them provisions for the journey. To each one of the brothers, the older brothers, he gave changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Think there's any resentment there? They are so happy. It doesn't matter. Hey, look at that. He got five garments and 300 pieces of them. Yeah. You know what? I often say this, but you know, the scripture says we're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm so happy that, that, uh, uh Pam can be here today. Uh, nice to see Matt and his wife. Nice to see the doctors here. I see anybody actually, but, um, but 
I often say, you know, prayer meeting can be dangerous to your spiritual health because if you are resentful and selfish, you're going to sit there and somebody's going to say, hey, Dale, or hey, Mike, before we take any prayer requests, can I, can I give a praise? And they was going, no, we don't have time for presents. Forget it. Yeah, yeah, okay, give us a present. I just want to talk about my boss. I just love my, my boss is so great. He's always telling me how great I am and he's so nice and he's so kind. And I got my third raise this year already. Now, let's say you're sitting there and you've dragged yourself to prayer meeting and you've got a horrible boss. He never says anything nice. He never gives you any warm fuzzies. You haven't had a raise in five years and you're sitting there and you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. Some people can't do that. (laughs) Some people go home very depressed. But you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. God's got different purposes and reasons for you. And weep with those who weep. And I've often said it's a lot easier for most of us to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice, especially if they're rejoicing about something they have and we want and we don't have it. You know, So it can be a test of your character. In other words, you need to come to prayer meeting. It'll build your character, right? So anyway... Benjamin gets special treatment, special blessing, and the brothers are perfectly fine with it. They couldn't care less. It's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, To his father, Joseph sends as follows. Ten donkeys, letters with the best things of Egypt. Think ten Lexuses. Is that that the plural? Lexi? What's the plural of Lexus? Lexi? You know, ten Lexi, right, on trailers, you know, um, with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, Joseph did, and as they departed, he said, do not quarrel on the journey. He knows these guys, and he knows they got lots of explaining to do. They're going home with all this stuff, and they have gotten over the shock that Joseph's alive. Daddy doesn't know yet. And once they find, once he finds out, what's the first thing he's going to say? The text doesn't go into it. You have literary compression here. Moses doesn't tell you everything that he could tell you about what happened. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But let's look at this. 21 and 22. All the brothers are sons. All the brothers received gracious gifts from Joseph. But the one brother, Benjamin, gets extra blessing. That reminds me of the distinction theologically between salvation and evaluation. Salvation is a gift, charisma. Rewards in heaven are misthoi. They are earned based on works. How in the world can people be saved by grace through faith and not of works, and yet we're told throughout Scripture that everybody's going to be judged according to works? How can we be saved by grace without works if we're all going to be judged based on works? Here's the solution to that. There's a difference between salvation and evaluation. Okay? Salvation is always based on the work of Christ alone, received because of the grace of God through faith alone. Okay, that's salvation. So you talk about colors, countries, cultures, and so on. There's only two kinds of people, believers and unbelievers. Salvation is not by good works, it's designed for good works. And God's going to reward the good works that come out of Lori McCann's Christian life. And boy, you know... I don't follow you around except every other Tuesday. That's when I follow you, so just be careful in those days. Right? The, the, the second and the fourth Tuesday of every month when I follow you around. Um, but i got a feeling she's going to have a whole lot of rewards. But watch this. Evaluation isn't something that uh, is directly connected to salvation. It has to do with the effects of salvation. 
And I'm convinced, 1 Corinthians 3 goes in great detail about this, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, 5, talks about the fact that in the set of the saved, Jesus is going to evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ the quality and the quantity of the fruit of your Christian experience. And guess what? Somebody like Jeff or Homer may get more rewards than your average pastor or even Pastor Brad. Okay, this is not just ministers all get this and the people that only sign up for some of the things that church get that. It kind of depends on holistically how well you submit to and respond to the Lordship of Christ in your life. There are going to be different levels of reward based on levels of fruitfulness and they're even going to be crowns, which are kind of like letter jackets, that the people that really do some amazing things, there's going to be one particular crown, a crown of life that's given to martyrs. Okay, in golf, there's a Ben Hogan Award. Ben Hogan had won several majors, and he almost killed in a car wreck, and he had an amazing recovery and won three majors in 1953 after the car wreck. And so for major golfers that overcome great medical or physical challenges every year, they win the Ben Hogan Award. Now, apparently the Ben Hogan Award has a really cool-looking trophy because Lee Trevino's wife saw that trophy when he was just starting his career and said, I want you to win that trophy. And he said, what? you got to get hit by a bus, which is what happened to Ben Hogan to win that trophy. Guess what? Several years later at the Western Open, there's a thunder rain delay. He, Jerry Hurd, and uh, another pro was sitting in the back of the green. Back then, they just kind of like us in Oklahoma. When there's a tornado warning, we go out in our front yards with our lawn chairs and look around for the tornadoes. Um, I can't think of that guy's name. But anyway, Jerry Hurd, um, Lee Trevino, and another pro were sitting behind the green waiting for the siren to say, you can go back and play your golf. And they get hit by lightning. Did you hear this? And it me- talking about your back, it messed uh, Trevino's back up. And I was a dental student at the medical center in the Houston Medical Center uh, when he was getting his operation. They took him to Houston for his operation. I remember I was literally driving past the hospital that he had had his operation in while he was recovering, and I heard about some details about the recovery in the, on the radio. And I thought, this is cool. They were talking about that, and I'm looking, that's the hospital right there. But anyway, uh, you know, you, you got uh, to really be... Uh, able to overcome great physical hardship to win the Ben Hogan Award. I'm convinced that crown of life that's promised to martyrs, that's one of those crowns I don't personally want to get myself, because I'm not the John Wayne type. But I do think God gives special grace. Listen, there are concentration camps in North Korea now that are Hitler-like, and most of the people there have been guilty of like having a Bible, and they arrest not you but your whole family, and then work you to death. And I pray almost every night for the Christians in North Korea. For some reason, that situation has really gripped my my heart. And uh, but I think those folks that remain faithful are going to deserve a letter jacket. I hope I never get to deserve, really. But there's going to be levels of reward and also levels of condemnation in hell. How do I know that? If we had more time, I'd say just write us down. Uh, the Lord talks about stuff like that in passages like Matthew. Oops, I thought... 2314, I think it is. Where? Oh, yeah, okay. You know, I make these up and I can't remember how to use them. Yeah. (laughs) Matthew 2314 talks about the Pharisees will have a stricter, a greater judgment because they had more light. The more light you reject, the more culpable you are in that sense. Now watch this. I'm already kind of giving it away, didn't I? But, you know, that last little thing he says, I love that. In verse 2024, 
he says, uh, as they were leaving to go back home with all this great stuff and all the good news, don't quarrel, don't hassle, don't be agitated at each other as you go back home. Uh, again, um, I refer to another sporting analogy, which forgive me for that, but uh, 25 years ago, Nike, the sports company, had an advertising campaign that said, Bo knows. Now, I know Ken would know this, Ron would know this, but does anybody other than those two? I guess I just showed it. I always showed it, didn't I? Bo Jackson was this amazing athlete, like one of the greatest athletes of all time. You think uh, Jim Thorpe was amazing? This guy was unbelievable. He was like a world-class sprinter, world-class running back, world-class baseball player. And uh, he was one of the first big names that Nike signed to kind of, you know, be a spokesman for their brand and stuff. And so they had this series of commercials about bonos, bonos. But I'm going to tell you that the Genesis had that line first. We're going to say Jonos. He says to his brothers, don't get agitated with one another along the way. I know you're totally changed as far as your murderous attempt, uh, intents for me, the younger brother, and Daddy-O. But I know as you consider how you're going to explain all this to dad, you're probably going to have a tendency to argue and get all upset. So he says, you know, don't quarrel along the way. I mean, you've got to picture this. they got all this stuff, Carol, okay? So they got, you know, when they left, they weren't sure they were going to be able to make the deal for the food because the Egyptians are holding Simeon and maybe the guy's lying to him and they're going to just kill him. And then even initially after he reveals himself, they're thinking, well, he's going to throw us in jail now. So anyway, they're going back with all this stuff, all the food, all the extra stuff, and they're all going to move, and they all know all that. Jacob is totally in the dark, the dad. And so we can find out. I'm going to ask Jacob in heaven. I'm going to say, what did they say when they came back? Maybe something like this, Caitlin. Hey, Dad, guess what? We got really, really good news and really bad news. Sit down. It's going to take a while. Uh, you know, Joseph, yeah, yeah, you're breaking my heart. I th- I'm mourning his passing every day. Now, he's actually alive. He's actually the prime minister of Egypt. Uh, he's going to move us here. All expenses paid. Well, you're kidding. You had the jacket with the blood on it. Well, we kind of made that up. You see, we were just going to let him die in a pit. And then Judah came up with the idea, let's sell him for make some money out of the deal. We just figured they'd work him to death. You know, we didn't like that dream he had. And wow, how easy would it be for them to turn on each other now? I don't think they do that, but that was a real temptation. But I bet that was a hoot. So don't bicker about the small stuff, and certainly don't bicker about the big stuff as you explained to Dad what went on. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 14, uh, 4 which sounds like a great verse if you own oxen. It says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is always clean, but much revenue comes from the power of the ox. Let me paraphrase that. No milk without manure. That's what the rabbi said that verse meant. Okay? Uh, It's basically saying, you know, uh, if you don't have any cattle, you're not going to have to clean up after them. You have to clean up after them. You know what I mean? It's not very pretty. But you're better off with the ox, with the cattle, with the car, with the kids, than being without the car, without the cattle. And there's always something you whine about. But uh, and another favorite verse of mine is Philippians 2, 13, 14, which says, Do all things while grumbling and complaining. That's not what it says. No, it doesn't say do all things while grumbling and complaining. It says do all things without 
grumbling and complaining. And boy, I'm, I'm a world class whiner, complainer, bellyacher. Uh, I can do that really, really well. But he's saying, don't whine about it, don't complain about it. Uh, yeah, you guys were guilty and you recognize that, but God has used this for a greater good. Okay, let's look at the last few verses here. Verse 25 through 28, when Jacob hears of Joseph's existence and excellence, he's not just surviving, he's thriving, baby, in Egypt. He's stunned, can't believe it, but fairly quickly resolves to move to Egypt. We'll talk about why that's so significant next week. Because they weren't promised Egypt, they were promised Canaan. (laughs) And now there are reasons. There's a timeline. God's plan is a lot bigger than we are. Uh, Look at verse 25. Then they went up from Egypt, and they came to the land of Canaan. According to Church Wendell, five to six days later, I'm going to say 10, 11, 12. uh, To their father Jacob, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he's the ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now that's literally compression. They didn't say one sentence and it was all done. They, they've been talking for hours. And again, it's good news, bad news. But this literary compression, Scripture doesn't tell you everything you could want to know. And in fact, I think it's written in part, and I've told Jack this many times, to kind of leave things to wonder about. You should interact with these texts. I wonder how, how they got to that point in that discussion. You don't pound the pulpit on those kind of things, but the Scripture is just brilliant in, in drawing you in to engage with it. You know, So, hey, Joseph's alive. In fact, he's the Prime Minister of Egypt. But... Jacob, the dad, was stunned, you know. He couldn't believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph, that he'd spoken to them, and when Jacob saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father was revived. I guess so, man, what an incredible thing. And I'm surprised he didn't have a heart attack out of good news. You know, it's just too good to be true. Then Israel said, Israel and Jacob are interchangeable terms in this case for the father. It's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. In fact, he's going to live quite a bit more, almost two decades more. We'll talk about that later. But it's interesting. Don Anderson, I bet Homer and Pam remember Don Anderson, was a wonderful Bible teacher from uh, East Texas who was influential in some of the early stages of Tanquid Bible Fellowship. And he came at least once and did a Bible conference after I came in 88. But in his commentary on Genesis, he says there are three stages to believers submitting to God's surprising but providential working. Step one, and he likes alliteration like I do. Stubbornness, verses 25 and 26. He didn't believe it, took it to be true. Number two, surrender. His spirits revived. Number three, satisfaction. So Don Anderson says there's three steps to that. Stubbornness, surrender, satisfaction. Uh, I would say resistance, just took it to be true. It's not malicious. Kind of what happened when the apostles get the word that the women had seen the risen Christ. They said, well, I guess he's risen from the dead, right? It was just too good to be true. It took them a while. They resisted it. Repentance, changing your mind about your resistance, and then resolution. So I love that. I'm going to go and see him. And then the story picks up from there. But I'm going to stop there and say a couple things in conclusion. Number one, let me uh, relate this passage to a version a spin-off of Christianity that's becoming ever more popular in our consumer-driven, I'm a customer, not a committed disciple kind of mindset in the visible church in America and the West. Uh, there's a, a, a body of teaching, a school of thought that's called the Word of Faith teaching or the Word of Faith movement. Joel Olstein is probably the most visible member 
of that movement. It's also known as the name and claimant movement. And these folks insist that Christian life faith, like in prayer, is a force. It's a tool that we can use and to which God responds and he must respond. When we pray in faith, he's got to give us what we want because faith is a force that moves him. Faith, and they mean by faith, that we believe what we're asking for will happen must be exercised in order for our petitions to come to pass. So uh, you pray you're healed of disease X. You you really believe you're going you're gonna to be healed. You throw away your medicine and you die two weeks later. Things like that happen, you know, kind of thing. Uh, can God heal any disease? Yeah, he can. Does he always heal every disease? No, he doesn't, right? So watch this. In Genesis 45, the word of faith theology breaks totally down. Jacob didn't believe he'd ever see Joseph again. He was totally convinced he was dead, right? But even after his sons told him, so he's not praying he'll get to be reunited with Joseph this side of the grave. He's given up on that. But even when his sons initially tell him that Joseph's alive and they've got great evidence, it took him a while to believe it, okay? It's kind of like the Apostle Thomas, you know, unless I touch the wounds, I'm not going to believe it. So, Christian life faith is not presumption that forces God to do our will. When you really analyze that theologically, it's a horrific heresy to say that if I have enough faith, God's got to give me every and any little thing I ask for, including a parking lot, Joel Osteen famously tells, driving around a mall in his Lexus, he's probably got more than one, to buy some high-priced item, and you know, he made, what, three, $3 million to have somebody ghostwrite his second book, so he's got plenty of money. Um, and the little old lady sent their social security checks to people like that. But uh, he was praying for a parking space near to the mall because he didn't want to have to walk too far. And boom, because he believed it was there, there was a parking space. I guess God just vaporized the other guy's Lexus and he got to drive in there. You know, it makes God your bellboy. I mean, it's really, when you think about it theologically, it's really her- heretical. And it, you know what? It breaks people's hearts because it doesn't work that way. And you get some little old lady who sends all her social security checks and then she gets some disease or a loved one gets a disease and she really believes God can heal it and did heal it because I said so. And Joe, and Joe Olsen said, if I believe it, it's going to have to happen and it doesn't happen. And she has a crisis of faith and has a broken heart. So let me conclude with this about what faith is in prayer. Uh, I've always said it's not just believing it happened and so God's got to come across. Faith in prayer is trusting God to answer us according to his will, not according to my mandate. In his time, not necessarily on my schedule. And I think about the Lord's Prayer. And again, I mean, that's our basic template for prayer. And it's, you know, thy will be done. I think about Jesus at Gethsemane. If there's any way we can go to plan B in my human consciousness, uh, if there's any way we can go to plan B, let's go to plan B. But not my will, but thy will. That's the essence of prayer. So my working definition of prayer is, prayer is a grace channel of communication whereby believers, I mean, Angel Wiley, Mike Palovic, uh, Pam Cox, whereby believers seek and submit to God's will, trusting that God, in fact, uses our prayers as part of the process where he works out his will in time. I'm convinced that Joseph has been praying for reconciliation with his family for 22 years. He'd forgiven them essentially immediately at a personal level, but he's been praying for reconciliation, but it took 22 long years for it to happen, and a lot of time during this story didn't look like it was ever going to happen. 
But he prayed not thinking if he really believed it would happen, it would force God's hand, but trusting that God's hand would work in those matters if and when he, God, so desired, and man, was it ever sweet when it happened, and it really did happen. So rather than thinking we're informing God or mandating a to-do list to God when we pray, let's pray without ceasing to commune with him, to glorify him, to seek and submit to his will, his way, and his time. And if and when we're blessed with opportunities, not just to forgive others, but to have full reconciliation and reunion after a breakdown of a relationship, man, see that as God-given blessing and a great thing. And uh, in connection with Tomas's illness, Carmen, his wife, and her two sisters, uh, Blanca and Elizabeth, have fully reconciled. And uh, in the email said that's a huge blessing. So they're enjoying that. Sometimes it does happen. We leave. Let's forgive others. Let's keep the bridge open on our side. And let's hope that God changes their character so that they can open the, the door to us and reconcile. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. There are some of these feuds that preachers get involved in with each other that won't get reconciled until they see each other in heaven. And boy, that's going to be embarrassing, you know. So save yourself a little embarrassment, okay? Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father, I want to pray the Holy Spirit of God will take the truths of this text and change them from mere information, cognitive data, into transforming truth that will change our priorities and our outlook to your glory, that you be glorified in the process and product of that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.